All right, last sentence of chapter 3 of 2 Samuel, David saying, The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. True or false? Read it again. The Lord, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, will repay, will give you your paycheck for the wickedness that somebody does, defined as an evildoer. Now, these, these are legal definitions. We're going to sit in uh, you know, the term wickedness this morning, and the wicked and the righteous, it means the guilty and the innocent. So what David is saying is that Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth, will repay, will give compensation to the evildoer who does according to his wickedness. And again, wickedness, it's his guilt. And what makes us guilty? By doing what God says not to do or not doing what he tells us to do. And this is the condition of every single human soul. So I want you to sit in just just your imagination, put yourself in a court of law. Do you want to stand before the creator of the heavens and the earth and give a defense for yourself, for your actions? Here's what I did. Here's my justification for why I did it. Here's what I didn't do, and this is why I didn't do it. Do you want to have that conversation with God, yes or no? So what conversation do you have with God? Sorry, sorry. <laughs> sorry Lord. You're right. I'm, I'm saying your words. Your word, you have told me that this behavior is wrong. I agree with you, Lord. This is wrong, and this is what I did. And through your son, through his sacrifice, from him, our creator, stepping into this flesh and offering his body and separating his blood from his body, pouring out, shedding his blood as a sacrifice to atone, to cover, to be the expiation is the word, to satisfy the wrath of the Father towards the sin in my life. That's what Jesus did for me on the cross. And the evidence of it is his resurrection from the dead. The the life of him and all that he is has been handed to each one of us freely. And we entered into that position by faith. So I am no longer an evildoer. David, as a man after God's own heart, can sit in this truth, even as we looked in the mess of his life last week, as he is disobeying certain aspects of God's word and obeying other aspects, there's this constant relationship, faith, trust, hope, and we're watching David image to us through his relationship with God many examples that we can hold on to in our own relationship with God to help us understand who he is and who we are in him. And there's a whole bunch of one-liners in today's text that are going to help reinforce that. And the idea that David is going to say that my God has redeemed me. He has purchased me out of every single need, distress, and trouble I have had in my entire life. My God, he has always been with me because he loves me and he favors me and he cares for me and he desires to have his life in me and through me every single day. My God has made incredible personal promises to me through his word and through, and through specific circumstances in life that I can tell you right now, God has established me. I know that he has. Because of what he gave me as promises, and then when I sit in the fulfillment of those things, I know that I am in his will today. Now, that doesn't mean that he may not uproot me and cause me to feel unestablished in my life again, but what does he do? He will faithfully give me the promises that I need. He will faithfully lead me to the next point where he needs to establish and root me down. These are the promises out of his word today. And the last one that we're going to sit in, when the enemy comes, our God, he is the master. He's the Lord of breakthroughs. Does anybody need the enemy, an enemy, even if it's yourself? Do you need the Lord to break through as a water bursts through the dam in that aspect in your own soul, in your own life? 
or to give you that victory that you need over the devil, whatever that temptation may be, that you trust him for the victory that you need to see in the culture. These are the topics that we're sitting with in David's life today. These are the, the ideas that as we sit in the narrative of the word of God, God is attempting to make himself known in all of his glory and all of his grace and all of his love and in his holiness and his wrath and his truth that we can't try and go this way or that way to the right hand or to the left, that he's going to keep us on that straight and narrow path following him. Well, we've dealt with a whole bunch of mess all the way through 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel. We got another murder that we need to talk about, and then we get to turn the page, which is awesome. So when Saul's son, this is Ishbosheth, heard that Abner had died in Hebron, he lost heart. Literally, his hands dropped. And all Israel was troubled, terrified, horrified. Now Saul's son had two men who were captains of troops. The name of one was Baana. We're just going to call him Banana because that's what I say every time I look at his name. And the name of the other was Rechab, the sons of Ramon, the Berothite, of the children of Benjamin. For Beroth also was part of Benjamin because the Berothites had fled to Gitaim and have been sojourners, literally aliens and dependents there until this day. All right, who are these guys? What are these guys? Why is that here? So one, this looks all the way back to Joshua chapter nine when God is bringing the nation of Israel into the promised lands, there's this scene with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites are natives of the land. They are to be wiped out by the nation of Israel as they come in. They have heard the testimony of God. They've heard everything that the children of Israel have done for the last 40 years. They believe in that Yahweh is Yahweh, that he's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And they say, woe is me, what am I gonna do so that his kids don't come in and kill us. And they trick him. And in the tricking, they make, the nation of Israel makes a covenant with the Gibeonites not to kill them. And God holds them accountable to that covenant. So it says that they become woodcutters and water gatherers in the service of the temple. So when it talks about these two guys, they are either of the heritage, the ancestry of the Gibeonites, or they are just of the tribe of Benjamin, or over time that blood and that ancestry has intermingled. Why it's important in the text is, we're not told here, but we're gonna to be told in chapter 21 that when Saul was alive, Saul tried to exterminate the Gibeonites. So we're told here in this scene that there was a time where the Gibeonites that are in Beeroth, they fled to Gitaim. Now, both of these communities, they're in the tribal area of, Jude, of Benjamin. But what Saul did historically is what's causing them to run. So which brings about the weight. Why do these guys want to kill Ishbosheth? Well, these guys have an issue with what Saul did historically, and we're going to see God even judge what Saul did later on in chapter 21, if you want to read ahead. So that's who these guys are um, and the definition that we're get, given. We're given another snapshot of another character that we need to hold on to in verse 4. Jonathan, Saul's son, had a son who was lame in his feet. He was crippled, broken in his feet. He was five years old when the news about Saul and Jonathan came from Jezreel. So remember, Saul and Jonathan were killed in battle with the Philistines. And his nurse took him up and fled. And it happened as she made haste to flee that he fell and became lame. He became, his feet became limp. His name was Mephibosheth. And we're going to save him, him and his life and his story for when we get into chapter 9. If you want to read ahead in chapter 9, it is absolutely awesome. His name means the destroyer of shame. He is a perfect imagery of human beings that have fallen. And through falling, 
we have become limp and we have become crippled. And we, we are going to watch David interact in this man's life where he invites him to come and eat at his table all the days of his life. Incredible picture of our relationship with our Savior. But Mephibosheth, his character is going to repetitiously come up as we continue to travel through 2 Samuel. So hold on to him. And that's why he's being introduced here. Verse 5. The sons of Ramon, the Berothites, Rechab and Banana, set out and came at about the heat of the day to the house of Ishbosheth, who was lying on his bed at noon. Ishbosheth's having a siesta. And they came there all the way into the house as though to get wheat, and they stabbed him in the stomach. Then Rechab and Banana, his brother, escaped. For when they came to, into the house, he was lying on his bed in his bedroom. They struck him and killed him, beheaded him, and took his head, and were all night escaping through the plain. So this is, they've crossed over the, to the east of the Jordan River to Monaheim, where uh, Ishbosheth is. This plain that they're running to through the south, this is the plain of the Jordan River. They brought the head of Ishbosheth to David at Hebron, way south of Jerusalem. And said to the king, Here is the head of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, your enemy, who sought your life. And the Lord has avenged my Lord. So Yahweh has avenged my Adonai, the king this day of Saul and his descendants. So these guys think that they're doing David a favor, and these guys are looking for a reward. That's why they're bringing the head in a bag, saying, Look at what we did now, pay up. But David answered Rechab and Baana, his brother, the sons of Ramon, the Berothites, and said to them, as the Lord lives, if you mark in your Bible, underline, highlight, double highlight this, who has redeemed my life from all adversity. When someone told me saying, look, Saul is dead, thinking to have brought me good news, I arrested him and had him executed in Ziklag. The one who thought I would give him a reward for his news. How much more when the wicked men have killed a righteous person, literally when guilty men have killed an innocent person in his own house on his bed. Therefore, shall I not now require his blood at your hand and remove you from the earth? So David commanded his young men and they executed them cut off their hands and feet and hanged them by the pool in Hebron. But they took the head of Ishbosheth and buried it in the tomb of Abner, tomb of Abner in Hebron. Are you guys sick of talking about murder and cutting off heads and hands and feet? I can't wait to turn the page, but before we turn the page in David's life, just sit in this statement of David's declaration in regards to who his God and our God has been to him. Statement, like title for God, statement of his life, something that underpins and is a foundation for his faith. And as he looks back at his history in that faith and that relationship, he can say that God lives, he is real, he is true, he is active, he is all that he claims to be. But he is the one who has delivered me. He's saved me. He has redeemed me. And this idea of redemption, it's, it's to purchase. He has bought me out of every single need and distress that I have ever had in my life. David is sitting in this positionally when it comes to his soul. When we look to faith in Jesus Christ, we can say that Jesus, through the shedding of his blood, he has purchased me out of this world, out of the hands of the devil, out of sin, out of my own flesh, with the price of his blood, his precious blood, he has bought me out of that adversity of sin. But I can also say in my life, any time that I felt that I have had a need, whether it's a physical need, a mental need, a spiritual need, as the Lord lives, he has provided for me in every single time that I've ever said, God, help. And there's sometimes where that help came way down the road. I wanted it now, 
And it came a year down the road. It came five years down the road. It came 10 years down the road. And this is where, this is, this is a statement of faith. This is a statement of confidence. We're going to get into the idea of peace in a minute. This is a statement of peace. As God who created the heavens and the earth is eternally. He has bought me out of all my needs, all my distress, all my opposition, all my enemies, all my adversity. There he is, being who he is all the time. Do you believe it? When you don't feel like it, come back to a passage like this with David. For those of you who've been, as we've traveled through Samuel and you know all of the story and everything that David's been through for the last 15 to 20 years of his life, for those words to come out of David's mouth, they have weight. I know that you all don't know my backstory and my testimony, what the Lord has done with my life. When I say these words, these words have weight in my soul. This isn't religion for me. This isn't motivation for me. This is truth. I know that God is because of what he has done in my life. I cannot deny him. I'm confident and not some wishy-washy religious hope. I am confident. I, have, I cannot deny him just in logic for what he's done in my life historically. Therefore, today, what does that do for me today? And then what does that do for me and my plans for the future? Even as Chris is praying for me not to preach a message, that's just rude. You want Jesus to come before I even talk. Look at me, my Bible, I get to turn a page. And literally, in the, in the biblical text, we are turning the page in David's life. We are turning the page in the life of the nation of Israel. This is a major transition going from chapter 4 to chapter 5 in the Word of God. Chapter 5 says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke, saying, Indeed, we are your bone and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, you were the one who led us out and brought them in. And the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. Therefore, all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron. And King David made a covenant, an agreement with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was about 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. And this is what I've titled this morning. This is where we're stepping into the United Tribes of Israel. You can sit in our own history as a country in the United States of America where you have a group of colonies, right? 13 colonies and their Congress and their leadership for each one of those different colonies gathers together and becomes a nation. It's the exact same imagery that's going on. Here you have all of these different tribes that are related and they're related by blood. There's a blood relationship here. David, you are our flesh and you are our bone. We are one with you. We are kinsmen with you. And we know what God has declared about you. God has chosen you to be a shepherd. And this is imagery that plays out through the entire word of God. And it's super important because what does a shepherd do? A shepherd's role is to feed that's the primary role of the definition of what a shepherd does is he feeds his flock. How does he feed the flock? He leads, leads them to pastures, leads them to water, takes care of the sick and the lame and protects from the animals and protects from thieves. There's all of this imagery when it comes to shepherd. But what God is saying, David, I have chosen you because I am the shepherd of Israel, I am the shepherd of your soul. These people are my people, but I am appointing you over them to do, to be my hands, to be my feet, to be my eyes. All of that imagery, David is to shepherd underneath the shepherd, the great shepherd, right? That's the imagery that's given. And God has chosen David to be ruler. This is Nagid. This is a prince. This is a leader over his children. So when these people, when they gather together, First Chronicles, we're not going to get into there today, First Chronicles 11 through 14, 
gives a lot of the same information and some additional information. The additional information that they give is there are thousands of people from each one of the tribes that have come to meet David in Hebron. Thousands. This is a multi-day celebration where they are now unified under the headship of a singular king, which in some ways is a bad image, and then in other ways it's a good image, right? The nation of Israel did not need a king because God is their king. Yet in their request for a king, God is giving them definitions for what a king is to be and who this king is to be underneath the authority of God. This is everything that Jesus images to us. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Almighty, Eternal God. Father sending a son, his son to be king in that relationship, representing the Father perfectly in all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of his might, all that God the Father is, so is the Son represented as king. That's what this King David is to image for us. So again, I've mentioned before, we're going to watch the man in his flaws, but God continually favors him. We're going to watch him give him this incredible promise in chapter 7 that carries forward even through today. But this is a whole community. They are now united. They are fulfilling God's word. One of the weird, you know, David was king for seven and a half years in Hebron, but we're told that Ishbosheth was only king for two years underneath Abner. Ishbosheth just died, right? So you have a five and a half year period that's unknown in regards to the leadership of the, the other tribes. So remember, there's a whole bunch of backstory here. There's a bunch of politics. Even when we watch this unity underneath the authority of David, we're gonna see little slivers of the disunity and the discord that continues there in all of these tribes because they wanna be represented. How different is Washington State from Florida? How different is New York from California? Or Utah, from Texas to Montana to the Dakotas. The Dakotas are weird. We won't talk about them, right? But right, we have all these broad brush statements about different areas in our own country as we're united together. Same thing culturally here. They have their broad brush statements about the different tribes, where they live, what their personalities are, what they represent, what they're trying to achieve on their own. So all of that discord is still there in the midst of the unity. And then again, all you gotta do is look around the room. Are we united in the body of Christ? Underneath headship of Jesus. But when you look across the room, we're really different. We have a ton of similarities, but we have a ton of differences and diversity, and it's, it's awesome. It should be. There shouldn't be discord in all of that diversity, but unity and love for the Lord and love for one another. All right, verse six. So now we have consolidation of, of this kingship, God is the one who sent Samuel to anoint David in the first place. The tribe of Judah has anointed David. Now all of Israel has anointed David. And again, David is lifted up as that king, as the ideal that all future kings are um, held in the balance to, if that makes sense. So as we travel, as you travel on in the word of God, a king the, the Bible will say he did just like his father David did, or he did not do like his father David, but he did like some other guys. So David, again, he's held as that, that ideal king all through the word of God. Verse 6, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land who spoke to David, saying, you shall not come in here. But the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking David cannot come here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. Now David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house." Then David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David, and David built all around from the millow and inward. And David went on and became great, and the Lord God of hosts was with him. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, 
sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons, and they built David a house. So David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. Good job, David. And after, after he'd come from Hebron and also more sons and daughters were born to him. Now, these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. Those are all the sons of Bathsheba that we'll get into. Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Iaphia, Elishama, Eliada, and Eliphalet. There's some good names to name your, your children. All right, so out of David's family, we've got 19 sons listed and a daughter. Clearly, he had more children. We sat in the polygamy and the mess of that last week, and we'll sit in that in the future as we travel ahead. But here's what's going on in the narrative. Multiple times in, in this section, we're, we're being introduced to uh, characters that are going to be important in, in the biblical narrative as we continue to go through it. And we're also being introduced to just very, very foundational uh, and pivotal moments in this chapter. One, David becoming the king over the United Nation for the first time. And then two, the city of Jerusalem. So historically in the Bible, you see, we think that Melchizedek in Genesis, it says that he's the king of Salem. It's understood that he is the king over, as a priest of God, that he is the king over this community in Jerusalem, Salem. In Joshua, when the nation of Israel comes into the land, it's specifically, specifically called out that the Jebusites who dwell in Jerusalem, that the Jews conquered around, but they were not able to drive the Jebusites out of this walled city. So the Jebusites, this is their, their people that represent the natives of the land and the, those that God has judged. That's why it's saying here that David's soul hates them because God hates them. God loves everyone, right? Died for the sins of everyone, but there is no excuse for sin whatsoever. So the unrepentance, again, definition, God is in opposition and hatred towards that position. So David's soul is imaging God's soul to the natives of this community. Now this is, we could sit here and geek out on this forever. So Jerusalem, physical city, when you look at the history and the archeology, span this community, we understand it to be roughly about a thousand people of what the inhabitants could be within the walls at this time. When you sit in just the, the, uh, the geography of the modern city of Israel today where the Gihon Spring is, there's a spring that's coming up from underneath the ground. You can get on YouTube and do all the touring that you want to do. It's pretty fascinating. But the Gihon Spring is a water source that's outside the walls of Jerusalem. And over history, different groups have found different ways to get that water source within the walls so that any opposing army that's laying siege to the community, you have a water source. So what David is saying that, hey, whoever can go into that water source and go up the water pipe, up the water shaft, he's going to be the captain, right? Guess who it is? Chronicles tells us that it was Joab is the one that goes in. But this becomes the foundational city where we are told historically in the Bible that when God is going to bring his kids into the land, he is going to appoint a city for his name to dwell. And the whole purpose of that is for God to, as he is establishing his people in this place, as David has been established as king and he knows it, we're going to turn into the next chapters where David wants to see a, not a portable tent where God promised to dwell in the midst of his people. David wants to see God just as permanently established in this community as he has established David there. That's the thought that's going to travel forward. But that's a conveyance of God's thought because God says, here's where I'm going to meet you. We'll get into this subject matter next week as we talk about the Ark of the Covenant and all, of this, all that that means and what David desires, building of the temple later on. 
But when it comes to the importance of Jerusalem, you have to pay attention to the context of the Bible. Because very often you want to think that God is talking about a physical city when he's talking about a spiritual city and a spiritual ideal. Many times when we are talking about King David, are we talking about the man? Or are we talking about what the man is to image? When it comes to Jerusalem, are we talking about the actual city of Jerusalem? Or are we talking about that eternal new Jerusalem that God is going to recreate that we're told at the end of Revelation? But this becomes this city. It's defined as the city of peace. The, the last half of the word, Salem, it means peace. The first half of the word, it's, it's a foundation. It's also considered to be a height, a teaching. This, everything that Jerusalem is to convey is peace. That's why God chose this place. Why? Who is Jesus to image to us? What is he the prince of? What is he the king of? Peace. What is peace? That perfect glass of, of absolute still water and tranquility. It, does your relationship with God look like that? That's what Jesus promises to bring into our life. You can have all this agitation going on in the outside. Everything causing the waves just to, to well up and the billows, the waves are going over your head. You can sit with the disciples on the, beat, uh, the boats in the middle of the storm. What does Jesus do? Cast the storm out. All becomes calm. He's the Prince of Peace. The city, Jerusalem, is to image that. Whenever we sit in that, even in God in the Bible identifies Jerusalem as Sodom. How's that for a bad image? That's because that's not what it's supposed to be. If God is calling Jerusalem Sodom, then that means that his city that is to image peace is imaging wickedness and rebellion. That which God poured out his judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, later on we're going to watch God's going to pour out his same judgment in fairness and righteousness and justice. He's going to pour out that same wrath upon this city. The city is to image him. The city is to be the seat of his kingdom, his government. Right? It says here that... Um, um, that the Lord, he exalted, it's about his kingdom. It's not David's kingdom, it's God's kingdom. For the sake of David's people, no. For the sake of his people. And today, again, we, we sit in this spiritual reality today that Jesus is our king, and the body of Christ is his people. And what he does in us and for us and through us, it's to exalt him and it's to exalt his kingdom because we are all his. We have no personal ownership over human beings and possessions and material things. All of that we have an open hand with because God, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away from an open hand. What he gives, we don't wrap around our hands and say, mine. He gives and he takes away, and regardless of what those circumstances look like, blessed be the name of the Lord. These two lines here in the midst of Jerusalem being established as the seat of government for the nation of Israel, the promise that the Lord God of hosts was with David, Again, another sentence that you should underline and highlight and go back to and declare to yourself every day. Do you believe that God is here right now? I was telling uh, Tony as, as we were praying this morning, my first words to God this morning as I sat down to, to review, as I start talking to God, it was, you're here. It was one of those, as, I, as those words escaped my mouth, I had a conversation with God. What does that even mean? And then as I sit here and review this morning and, and get ready to come in here again, he just highlights, Blake, I have always been with you. But sit in that definition. There has never been a time in your life where God has not been there. And all that he is. What does it mean that God is here right now and he's halfway around the world and he's in the neighbor's house next door? Is it physical? What, what is God as spirit? 
What is that power that he has created us to begin with? What is that reality that he is able to be actively, continually present with us? He is the God who is and who was and who is to come, right? He is always here and present. And that can bring about agitation. When we want to say, well, if that happened, you're telling me that God was there and he let that happen? What kind of God is that? Anybody ever pick up those stones and want to throw them? These are to be words of comfort, words of strength, words of peace, words of hope. And I can look back at my life. There you were, in my good, in my bad, in my smart, in my stupid. There he is, loving me, delivering me, washing me, teaching me, and all of his goodness and all of his holiness. Foundational sentence I am favored. Do you know that you were favored? Do you know that God has a wallet and your image is right there next to mine when he pulls it out and we're all his kids? It's, a, it's an incredibly, it, this is not, again, this is not a religious statement. This is a statement of fact and a statement of truth. And when you doubt, that's when the wavering and the messes step in. When you hold on, wonderful. David knew that the Lord had established him as king over Israel. This is uh, when you sit all the way with David, so it's been a minimum of 15, 15 to 20 years from the day that Samuel showed up at his house and anointed him with oil, anointed him as king. So he historically was anointed. Up until this point in his life, did David know that he was going to be established as king? Did David know that what Samuel proclaimed over his life was going to become a fact? Did he believe it? For sure. Absolutely he believed it. But did he know? And this is one of those things, do you know that you know that you know? There are many things that we hold on to by faith because the word of God says it. And then there are things that you know that nobody can undo your knowledge and your life experience because you have the decades to look back on and you can say with confidence, God has established me. I just crossed over nine years as the pastor for this congregation. I knew nine years ago when that transition happened that the Lord had established me. Because of promises and just the way he directed my life in history, I didn't know how these things were going to come about. When we just showed up and started attending here, I didn't do some hostile takeover like Abner and Ishbosheth. David was an example for me. If the Lord wants me to do this, then he'll bring about the circumstances in life. Do you think David went to king school? How does David know how to be king? How does he know how to shepherd? How does he know how to lead and rule? Do you think he made a whole bunch of mistakes in the last 20 years of his life? <laughs> We've read about a lot of them. What was God doing in those decades for David? Forming him to be the man that he needed him to be in the position that he was going to place him in so that Yahweh would be exalted and so that his people would be shepherded for no other reason. So David's journey of the decades of his life, when he has this confidence, I know David knew that the Lord established him as king over Israel. He had confidence. He had boldness in that. And we're going to see that and witness it. He had a very open hand that we can criticize David in his history, uh, in, the, in where we are in the word right now, and even in his future where he seems to 
lack a lot of leadership skills because we don't see him making decisive decisions. And a lot of that's just because he's a man after God's own heart and God can do what he wants. We're gonna see later on in David's life, David knows that he's been established as king and his son has snatched the kingdom away from him. And David's response is, the Lord wants me back, he'll put me back. But we watch David in all of this open-handedness in regards to the activities of his life because he just trusts the Lord and sings to the Lord. If you do not know that the Lord has established you where you are in life, ask him. Does that make sense? There was, for me, I felt called to the Lord very early on in my salvation experience as the Lord is cleaning up my life. I had different definitions, immature definitions of what that was going to look like in the future. I had a long season of the Lord breaking things out of me and transforming me, making me to be who I need to be at the moment you know, nine years ago and even over the last nine years, continuing to change me and make me to be who I need to be in him. I have no idea what I was going to say. I just got totally sidetracked. Ready to keep on going on. May the Lord, we're talking about being established. Um, I have a life experience that... I have this, this confidence that I can declare where you may not have the same life experience and that same kind of confidence. Does that make sense? Where you may have not heard specific things. You may have not gone down this road. You may not be sitting in the promises yet that you know that God has given to you where you are still waiting to be established in what you believe God has called you to. Again, this is the, in the whole narrative, in present and in history, just know that God has created you for a reason. He is with you. He has redeemed you as you look to him through his son for that redemption. And whatever his plans and purposes are in your life, he will root you down at the exact perfect time and he will work in you and through you. And if he wants to uproot you and move you again, have the open hand freedom for him to do that in your life. Verse 17, let it be known that when the Lord has anointed you and established you, the enemy is not silent. The Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel. All the Philistines went up to search for David. The enemy's now on the hunt. Now, like this very much, remember David's historical reaction, interactions with the Philistines, maybe some feelings of betrayal here, all kinds of stuff going on. And David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. The Philistines also went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim, the valley of the giants. So David inquired of the Lord, saying, shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver, literally, I will deliver, deliver the Philistines into your hand. So David went to Baal Perazim, and David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken, split through my enemies before me like a breakthrough, like a breach of water. Therefore, he called the name of that place Baal Perazim. And they left their images there, and David and his men carried him away. Now, that doesn't mean that they carried him away into their homes. Corinthians tells us that they carried him and put him in a pile and burned him with fire. Verse 22, then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord, and he said, you shall not go up, circle around behind them, and come upon them in front of the mulberry trees, and it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, then you shall advance quickly. And then the Lord will go out before you and strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord had commanded him, and he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer, 
the old man place. Gezer is, it's all the way out of the hill country back into the plains. In chapter eight, we're gonna see David fully subdue the Philistines. So we have the king. He's established in the holy city and all the relationship in, in, with the Lord in that. And as always, the enemy is always on the move. And in this section, again, we, we watch David twice. What do you do with the enemy in your life? What do you do with anything that you see as this is in opposition to the Lord in my life? This is in opposition to what the Lord is directing me to do. This is in opposition to his word, his counsel. There is something that is opposing you, an idea, a spirit, a person, the culture. What do you do with the enemy that's right before you? You pull out your sword and start hacking? Gather a bunch of brothers and sisters and, you know, come together with your collective wisdom of how you're going to deal with that enemy that's before you? Or you just go and ask the simple question of God. God, the door's for you. There's, there is something opposing your will in my life. Lord, what do you want me to do? I can't do anything about spirits. I can't even see them. But Lord, you have all authority. So if this opposition in, that is in front of me is spiritual, Jesus, I'm having a conversation with you and I am turning my confidence and my hope and my faith that you are who you say you are, that you have all authority. And I'm asking in your name that you would command the spiritual opposition to be cast away and moved away from my soul. I had this conversation with God yesterday and it was two minutes, not even two minutes, it was two seconds, it was two words. I had one of those zingers through my mind and it was while I'm studying the word and it was God help. And what did God do? He helped me immediately, changed my mind, changed my heart, kept on marching through with the word and led me out of the temptation, out of the opposition What do I do? Look at myself in the mirror and say, aren't I a good boy? No. I inquired of God. What is, what is this title of the Lord? He is the master of breakthroughs, is what Baal Perazim means. So Baal being a generic word for God, like we use the generic word for God, for Yahweh, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the master of breakthroughs. He is the God of breakthroughs. And the imagery is, I mean, look at Buford Dam. Look at Lake Lanier and all the volume of water that that dam holds back. What happens if a gigantic hole gets punched through it? But think of the imagery. That dam is being identified. That dam is the enemy. It is the opposition to the natural flow of water, the natural flow of the Holy Spirit in your life. What does God do? He punches through the enemies so that the water freely flows in the direction that he desires. He is the God of breakthroughs. Have any of you ever felt in bondage to sin? Bondage to your personality? in bondage to your circumstances. Again, to culture, put whatever subject matter you need into that. And here is another line that you can underline and remind yourself of. The God who created the heavens and the earth, nothing can stand against him. If he wants me to move in that direction, that is the direction that I will, be, will move. But I'm going to not just sit there and bash my head against the wall and try and do it myself. Lord, I'm seeking you. What do you want me to do? And look, he does it twice here. God tells him to do one thing in the circumstance. So does that mean that if God teaches you how to do it this one way, that you now do it that way for the rest of your life? You ask him again, because he might tell you another way. And the image that he gives to David, David, I am the Lord of hosts. These heavenly armies, 
the spirits that he has created that are underneath him. There is a spiritual battle going on, just like that there is a horizontal battle going on in our lives. And he gives David this promise in this circumstance. David, when you hear the sound of the feet marching in the trees, you'll know that I'm there and you know that I am going to give you the victory because I am going to go to battle for you. I am going to break the enemy. I am going to cause a breach and you are going to freely flow in the direction that I have for your life. Do you believe it? Worship team, come on up. Sit in all the major declarations of today's passage. Just in two short chapters, you have this incredible declaration, true declaration, that God will reward, will repay every single human being for all of their wickedness. And what is the singular way to be bought out of, the, of the, that consequence, that circumstance, that recompense? It's being bought by the blood of Jesus Christ, and you simply enter that through faith looking and believing that he will, whatever you need deliverance from today, whatever you need, he's there to freely give it to you today, right now. He is with us right now in this place. Not religious hocus pocus. The almighty God who spoke us into existence is here. And he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. If you were trying to go against him, he will stand in your path as your adversary. Praise God. If he wants you to travel down that path, he will make every opportunity open, every door open that needs to be in his time, in his moment, in his power. Nothing will be withheld from you. He will break through. And if you don't have the confidence that God has established you, that he has established himself in your soul, and this is between you and him, there's no reason for you to leave this room without that confidence, without the same knowledge of David that you know that the almighty God has established himself in you and you in him. So heavenly father, here we are. We are your creatures. We are here to love you and to honor you, to trust you, to worship you, to surrender to you, to rejoice in you. We love you more than words can express. So may our actions also express that love and devotion. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.